You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We bring national security law issues to you every week, as well as history and ongoing news that informs policy and law. Hey, we did this through the pandemic. I'm Elisa. And Yvette, is President Biden taking us out of Afghanistan after 20 years? He actually is. The theater we entered because the Taliban harbored Osama bin Laden. We broke it. We own it. Yeah. So, but the question is, you know, we've still got a little bit of a problem in Iraq. So the question we've always had is, how did we get into war in Iraq, really? And what role did the intelligence community play in getting us into that war? And was it the right role? Were they living up to the vision of the National Security Act of 1947 as amended? Our guest today is... Robert Draper, who's written an unprecedented account of the run-up to war and how important assessments were compromised to create, dare I say it, alternative facts. Slam dunks, curveballs, lies. Robert, we're glad to have you on. Why did you write this book now? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I decided to write it now for a couple of reasons. One, Lisa, as you know, I've written a book on the Bush presidency, spent a great deal of time with the 43rd president and in his White House, uh, surrounded by really all his top officials. And yet for all the access that I had, I still was really left without the answer to the baseline question of the legacy defining moment of his presidency. Just why did he decide to go to war against a country that had not attacked us 18 months after we were attacked by an altogether different force? That was especially dogging a question to me during the Trump presidency, since I really do believe that Bush's mistakes, and, and I will label it a mistake to, to go into Iraq, helped enable the rise of Donald Trump. After all, it was really because Trump was able to point during the Republican primary and distinguish himself from the rest of the candidates to the Bush presidency and say, you know, all you guys are supposed experts, your governors, your senators, and yet you all voted to go commit this crummy war that, that was endless, made no sense at all. What we really need is somebody new, somebody different. I think in a lot of ways, the death of expertise was born out of the misguided decision to go to war. And so I wanted to kind of track that through line that leads us from the days after 9-11, in essence, all the way up to today. But I, I got to say, I've read a number of books on presidential decision-making and leading up to war. I got to say, the thing that really struck me about your book was how balanced you are in, in the presentation, right? It starts off with a really actually complimentary portrait of Paul Wolfowitz as this American Jew who serves in Indonesia and really, you know, has a humanitarian's eye when it came to justifying deposing Saddam Hussein. I, I mean, I was struck by how human you make a lot of the characters. Can you just tell us about a little bit about your approach? Sure. Thank you for those kind words of that. And, and Paul Wolfowitz, the secretary or the deputy secretary of defense in the Bush administration, is in my mind um, a tragic hero or, or, or a tragic individual in that, not a hero, it's, um, uh, uh, he was an idealist, but his ideals led him to hope for peace through war. He had seen uh, religiously tolerant Muslim-dominated countries, uh, such as in Indonesia, and he wished the same for the Middle East and believed that the one impediment to that was Saddam Hussein. And uh, he had served as 
the number three man in the Pentagon during the first Iraq war, uh, when we successfully accomplished our mission of routing Saddam out of Kuwait, but in Wolfowitz's view, left the job unfinished because we basically stood back while Saddam Hussein slaughtered all these Shia. And Wolfowitz believed that that was a betrayal on the part of the U.S. and wanted to make good on it. I, you know, as for the my attempts at that to to not render people in caricature, I really think that you know at this juncture in particular to revisit something about which so much has been written and double down on caricatures is, just makes uh, it a fruitless thing. In, in a way, the context of writing this book during the Trump administration made me approach this with more humaneness because, you know, Wolfowitz, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, these are serious people. You know, regardless of whether anyone agrees with what they did or didn't do, they were consummate professionals. And in a lot of ways, they were the Republican version of the best and the brightest. And so, you know, I think the one individual I did have some difficulty, not so much taking seriously, but resisting caricature impulses is the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, because Rumsfeld was such a nasty bureaucratic infighter and so Socratic, maddeningly so, in his refusal to answer any straightforward question with anything but a question himself. He always wanted to be intellectually superior to everybody else. That was a driver for how some of the whole Iraq saga eventuated. But in the main, I really did try to understand what drove each of them individually. And they really did have individual motives and were coming from different perspectives. All right. So importantly, though, they didn't just rely on their individual motives. Uh, it, it's, it's important in the run-up to any conflict to have intelligence. And a key feature of that, as you mentioned, is the national intelligence assessment, estimate rather, which should be consensus document, right? And in addition to that, you had these PDBs, which, you know, it's interesting to me, Robert, that Trump did not take the PDBs and yet you really chronicle what can you just sort of explain what the, what the hell happened to the NIE and to the PDBs the, uh, the reason i ask is this should never happen again in the history of the united states right yeah. And so for your listeners elisa a pdb a president's daily briefing is what a president historically has received just about every day from um, the head of the intelligence community. In this case, it was the director of central intelligence, the head of the CIA, George Tenet. And this is a oral briefing that is complemented or supplemented by about six to eight pages of basically what's going on that day, usually topics of interest to the president, but also things that the president maybe isn't interested in, doesn't want to hear, but has to hear. Bush, having been the son of uh, CIA director George Herbert Walker Bush, was very, very diligent in receiving his briefing every day, which is not to, which is not the same thing as saying that he followed it necessarily. He did ask sharp questions, but in, very famously in the run-up to 9-11, he was given lots of briefings about um, um, al-Qaeda and about Osama bin Laden's intentions of striking the U.S., and Bush just didn't believe it. He thought that this was small ball. He thought um, he came from a kind of, you know, Cold War and post-Cold War background. And uh, the Clintons, he knew, were preoccupied with terrorists, with Islamic extremists, which to the Bushies only meant that, therefore, it must be like a worthless undertaking. I mean, that is so often what new administrations do. They, they, they tend to turn the page on whatever the, the previous administration was doing. 
That's the PDB. The NIE, the National Intelligence Estimate, is something that is given irregularly on a single particular topic that is the intelligence communities, which is to say like 17 of the intelligence agencies in the U.S. It's their consensus product as to what they assess a certain situation to be, whether it is, say, the economy of Russia after the collapse of um, the Soviet Union or Iran's nuclear capability. In this particular case, it was the matter of Iraq's program of weapons of mass destruction. The problem with doing this was that it was ordered up by Congress because Congress wanted to know uh, just what the situation was with Saddam's weapons capacity before they were going to vote to give President Bush authorization to use military force. There was no such document sitting on a shelf, so they demanded that George Tenet order the CIA and the intelligence community to produce one. Tenet gave them 19 days to do so. These products, at least, they usually take six months or so. So what that meant was that they really had no time to revisit all of their old assessments, slide them under the microscope, and you know wonder aloud and chew over whether or not there was any truth to them. Instead, they basically just took what they had off the shelf, dusted it off, repurposed it, slightly updated it with the very threadbare intelligence that they currently had on Iraq, and threw it all together. In so doing, um, and, and this is the most maddening part of the run-up to the Iraq war, I think, that I chronicled in my book, which is that by this time, this was in um, September of 2002 that the, the NIE was being slapped together by the intelligence community. It was already apparent to all these intelligence analysts that Bush wanted to go to war. And we already had troops overseas. We already had intelligence officials uh, staged up in northern Iraq. They could just see that this was a fait accompli. So they figured two things. They figured, first, this is going to happen anyway. And Saddam's probably got weapons. We always figured that he had weapons. And so we're going to do our level best to say where they are and what they are. But, you know, in the end, we're going to go to war. They'll find some weapons and no one's going to remember, oh, well, they said that weapons ABC were in locations XYZ. They'll just say they got the weapons and that's good. The second thing was that they figured, well, since war is inevitable anyway, we sure don't want to underestimate the WMD uh, stockpiles that Saddam has. What if, for example, the troops go in and we say to the troops, you know, we don't really think that Saddam's got chemical weapons, and then they get blasted by CWs, then, you know, that will be terrible. It's better to err on the side of caution and say Saddam has lots of chemical weapons, when in fact, there was really very little evidence that he had any at all. And as it turned out, he had precisely zero. But we instead assumed and stated as fact in this intelligence report that Saddam had this immense chemical weapons stockpile. And Colin Powell later, very famously before the United Nations on February of, uh, 3rd of 2003, gave this speech and said that this is hard, cold evidence we have of chemical weapons stockpiles that Saddam has. In fact, they did not exist. So I, I, I would, you know, just kind of like characterize your book as, as a study in institutional inertia, as you're laying out, and groupthink, like the, you know, <laughs> just the endless cycles of, we're going to start with what the president wants, and we're going to work backwards from there. And that, that like, that was, you know, I, I remember some of these narratives that were coming out in the press, right, as like, after it was evident that there was no WMD, right? But like, you've really captured it succinctly that we were starting from a we're going to war and working backwards from that as opposed to using the intelligence in order to justify war. Can you, 
can you talk a little bit about like some of those interactions, like the dysfunction that was going on um, in the National Security Council and the interagency and why it didn't pump the brakes on this march towards war? Sure. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things at play here. The context in which to view this, um, this was September the 11th. Rightly or wrongly, the Bush administration didn't see it coming. They were blindsided by the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. They believed that another attack was imminent. And now the question was, um, where was it coming from and who would the perpetrators be? Uh, they began to fall back on their old way of thinking, this old foe of their Saddam Hussein, which um, Dick Cheney, when he had been Secretary of Defense and was now Vice President, was well-versed in. Bush, as the son of a president um, who had um, uh, who Saddam had attempted apparently to assassinate in 1993. Uh, these guys had all these prejudices against Saddam Hussein. And so they figured that a next attack is coming. Um, Saddam is almost certainly going to be involved in it because he's always hated us anyway. And on September the 12th, um, the day after 9-11, he was the rogue, the outlier, who, among all the other nations, refused to say, you know, we're so sorry about what happened to you, America, and instead basically said, you guys got what you deserved. So he sure acted like a guy who, who really, you know, wanted to see harm brought to us. And then there was this belief um, based on a bunch of rolling and misguided assumptions over the years that Saddam still had weapons uh, and was hiding them from us. I think you've had one of the major problems in all this, one of the most maddening assumptions was that Saddam actually wanted to attack America. Um, that it, it was almost like this comic book notion that Saddam would be in cahoots with Osama bin Laden in the way that the Joker and the Riddler or something would, would be together. And when there was no evidence historically, and much less of anything current, of an operational relationship between Al-Qaeda and um, the Ba'athist regime. Uh, but on top of that, Saddam, there was no evidence that Saddam had the slightest desire um, to proactively attack America. And in fact, the intelligence community had assessed that it was highly unlikely that he would ever do so. And the only reason he would do so would be if we attacked him first. That was something that was wholly ignored, and uh, and and you know it, it is hardly a trivial matter that when you're thinking of going to war, you might want to consider whether or not the person who you want to go to war against actually seeks to do you any injury. Um, that was not the case, and yet the assumption that rolled over the years, you know, sort of gathering uh, gathering uh, moss and string and everything else. Um, was that this guy was getting progressively more evil, was getting more and more weapons, that we were more and more vulnerable, and that we more and more, therefore, had to strike preemptively. And yet every one of those assumptions was false. Well, it, it is interesting. One of the phrases that you use and was incredible when you talked about the shifting burden of proof, that they shifted the burden of proof. And you talk about how imagination uh, was used to close gaps in intelligence but one of the things I just want to explain to the listeners, you know, that you've heard some of these things, but the details that you have in here are new to me, a lot of them. Uh, and I think that that was one of the better aspects of this book. The important thing, too, is you also paint a picture of how many different human sources um, were telling the same version of events. Always a little suspicious. I certainly in the organized crime world, if you're interviewing two people and their story is exactly the same, there's something wrong. Um, but how 
little vetting there was. There, you know, intelligence sources being a very different thing than, for example, somebody who'd have to testify, suffer cross-examination, and maybe have their real history exposed. So I thought that was really pretty amazing. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was this sort of gaping absence of consideration about the terrible consequences that this war would have on individuals. It seems like Bush repeatedly referenced this effort to assassinate his father, and he seemed focused on sort of a personal vendetta. But I don't hear that there were any conversations about amputees, PTSD, the ultimate loss of trust in the government, or, you know, these secondary, tertiary, long-term, and potentially permanently damaging to the country consequences. I think that's right, Elisa. He he heard that from only one American source, and that was the Secretary of State, Colin Powell, who um, over dinner in the White House residence in August of 2002, did elaborate to the president of all the things that could go wrong. And yet he stood absolutely alone among anybody in the Bush administration. There were some foreign sources, for example, King Abdullah of Jordan, who warned the president of unintended consequences. But by and large, the president was of the, of the view that, number one, we really had no choice because Saddam had weapons, he believed, was almost certainly going to attack us with them, and we couldn't stand around and wait for, as the famous slogan would go, the smoking gun to arrive in the form of a mushroom cloud. Secondly, Bush was of the view that Iraqis would welcome us with flowers, that they would greet us as liberators, because that's what people around him said, and that's what the people who were brought into the Oval Office by Condoleezza Rice said to him. She did not, the, the National Security Advisor did not bring in one dissenting source. Uh, she brought in instead Iraqi refugees who had not been inside the country in 30 years who said, no, 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 from what we hear, um, the Shia and Sunni only get along poorly because Saddam Hussein has pitted brother against brother. You take Saddam away and they will coalesce around the new democratic government, which played to Bush's biases because as this Texan who, and I say this as someone who knew him back then in the 1990s, would continually say as governor of Texas, but even before them, that People just want to be free. It is the thing more than anything else. They want freedom. And you give them an opportunity at freedom, and they will lunge at it. it to, to every question, freedom is the answer, basically. But of course, that's foolish. I mean, in, in, in Iraq, the, the main question was survival, not to get shot at. The next question was, how do you feed your families, you know, the employment? And, and only then does representative participatory democracy or something, you know, fall somewhere down the line. But Bush just didn't see it that way. One thing I want to say with respect to the intelligence sources, Elisa, is that this was something, you know, when I did this book on Bush before, I interviewed tons of people in the White House, but not one person from the CIA. And for this book, I interviewed, I think, 70 or 80 people from um, the CIA and DIA. I benefited from the fact that a lot of them had retired, all these mid to high tier uh, intelligence analysts and case officers out in the field who had never spoken before, who didn't feel constrained from talking anymore. And so the book really does benefit from details that I got from them. They were in the trenches and, and don't have legacies to protect in the way that, say, a Condi Rice or a Colin Powell might have. And one other thing I'd just like to add, and you mentioned this, really to me it was the great epiphany in um, researching this book, the recognition that in the end, the intelligence didn't really matter so much, that President Bush relied on imagination. It's been said that 9-11 was a failure of the imagination, and I think the Iraq saga was 
a testament to imaginations run amok. The president would actually say things like in a speech he gave in Cincinnati in October of 2002. You know, as for Saddam's nuclear program, we don't know that much. And that's the problem. And then he starts saying, imagine if Saddam had this and that. And imagine if he gave them to Al Qaeda. And he just goes on and on with this imagine. And yeah, it's really scary to listen to all that. But there's no freaking evidence <laughs> that any of that occurred. And in fact, none of it was true. And yet the president um, basically made use of um, full use of our our inability to know things by conjuring up these crazed, fantastic, fantastical, nightmarish scenarios as a justification for going to war against a country that had never attacked us. Well, that was a major theme throughout your book, right? The president's kind of quixotic reliance on this concept of freedom, right? Which is actually, again, like it's Pollyannish, but it's it's not evil. A lot of portraits of Bush are, are built out to be this, you know, this person was bloodthirsty or a Texan and, you know, shooting from the hip and Yosemite salmon, that kind of thing. And it's, it's actually relatable, right? When you think about a person who's this idealist, right? So that was one theme. And the, the other theme is, as you were talking about, is just kind of like this imagination, right? Like, we we want to think of everything. We're not going to think about what the probable is. We're going to think about what the possible is. And it really turned intel analysis on its head. And these are kind of details that, you know, you can't get in the day-to-day, -day, right, New York Times article. But in retrospect, and, and as you talked about, like, interviewing all of these analysts, like, you can actually pull together a picture of maybe we shouldn't, you know, be thinking, okay, well, if we're hearing footbeats, we should think, horses, not zebras, right? We, we really should be thinking about what is, what's likely before we, we undertake this really consequential war. So can you just like talk a little bit about, about sure, that? Sure, sure. I mean, for one thing, I, I, your, your point's well taken that, you know, the, there is a sympathetic aspect to President Bush and to others in his, in his administration because, I mean, I'll just say it, he intended no harm. He intended only the best. He he really did believe this was not just the best for the country. He believed that this would be the best for the Middle East. He believed that, that people did want freedom, and he, and he believed and cared about the Iraqis to the extent that, that um, it was really his view that this was the kind of thing that they hungered for. And so there's a sort of tragic idealism that fuels a lot of this. But it is... Um, it's a pretty picture, you know, and, and, and once again, it's, it's kind of, you know, an imagination run amok. You know, the, what had happened was that 9-11 just kind of exploded everything. You, it's, it's one of the most trite things that I, I heard just ad nauseum during the course of this book and interviewing people that 9-11 changed everything. Well, on a certain level, it didn't change everything. I mean, a lot of, you know, that's, um, the, the rest of the world continued on for, you know, the world doesn't revolve around America. Americans themselves within a couple of weeks, you know, got back on their feet and continued with their routines. But it did change our outlooks and it did change our approach to foreign policy, the way we viewed the rest of the world. Uh, you know, the, the, the notion of relying on imagination rather than intelligence is actually something that, that no one that I interviewed, and I interviewed over 300 people for this book, um, recognized. It was only in listening to them that I realized they, you know, the intelligence community and the administration relied not on the probabilistic, but on the possibilistic. And, um, uh, and they 
conjured up the darkest scenarios of what would happen if we didn't invade Iraq, and then the rosiest scenarios for what would happen once we did invade Iraq. And um, all of this based on, and, and one of the original sins in this was that we just didn't have much intelligence sources in Iraq. We um, uh, we had two, literally two people inside the country, and the information that we got for them was all from them was always dated. And then the secondary source of information were all these Iraqi refugees who, you know, heard from their people back home, but would funnel it back to America through their own biases and their own desires. Famously, Ahmed Chalabi, uh, the uh, Iraqi refugee who was so favored by members of the Bush administration and other hawks who insisted that we could do a war in Iraq on the cheap really wouldn't cost us anything, then began to tell us everything we wanted to hear about uh, Saddam's supposed connections to Al-Qaeda, Saddam's weapons program, anything and everything to get them to go to war so that Ahmed Chalabi could come back to his homeland and help rule the place. Uh, so there are a lot of mixed motives um, in all of this, not all of them very wholesome. But when it comes to um, President Bush, I actually think, you know, going to what, what Elisa said, this was not to settle scores with Saddam for what he attempted to do to Bush's father. I think Bush really did intend to be a two-term domestic president and never go to war with anybody. That He would have loved to have seen Saddam taken out by somebody, but he wasn't going to stake his whole presidency on it. But what happened was that that Saddam was a bad dude basically constituted this muscle memory for Bush. So when Bush, after 9-11, was looking for new adversaries, he looked at the guy who tried to kill his dad. You know, I we're living in times right now in this country where, you know, we have a loss of manufacturing. I, I think there's a loss of esteem in, in most rural areas in the United States. My big takeaway from this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd like to know how you see it, is you know, these Americans volunteered to go fight in this war and it lacked a real purpose. They came back broken to towns, you know, that have become opioid pops, rust belt towns. And I feel like we don't want to ascribe any bad motive to Bush for this. But I also feel like those are the people who always fight the wars. Mm -hmm. And in turn, those turned out to be a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump. Um, how do you see, because uh, I, I do consider you a big thinker on these things. I mean, you don't just chronicle this stuff. There really are takeaways, big ideas. But where do you see this brought us as a country? And as, how did it, how did we end up like this? How did the war inform where we are now? Sure. Well, you touched on a bunch of different important points there, Elisa. I mean, one of them is that you're right. It's often people from these forgotten corners of America who end up fighting the wars, who signed up after 9-11, believing this is their chance to be somebody, to, to fight for a cause bigger than, than themselves, only to go over to a foreign land, get PTSD, and for what precisely, while in the meantime, um, the people who promulgated this war uh, were themselves um, strangers to combat. Uh, I refer to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and others um, who you know, never saw any military action at all. So there is that irony to consider if that's the word for it. As far as the through line to Trump, it's pretty evident that, that Trump differentiated himself in the second debate in 2015 from the rest of the field. It was considered you know, axiomatic 
that if you're a Republican, you support the Iraq war. Okay. It was, you know, a lot of complications here and there, but Hey, the surge was cool. And, you know, we got it right. And now Obama screwed it all up. You know, that was, that was basically the way to argue it. And we heard Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio do the same. And then Trump comes up on stage and he says, no, it was the stupidest decision I ever heard. These endless wars, it was ridiculous. And then his you know, throw or his his applause line of and and we should have taken the oil while we were there. But I mean, it's but Trump. You know, I remember hearing that the first time and thinking, "Holy cow, um, uh, Trump's going to get clobbered. The the Republican establishment will eat him alive for this, and so will Republican voters." And it was the first of many miscalculations that I made about Trump's candidacy, because in fact the voters ate it up. He was speaking to a um, a frustration and an emptiness that they had, and that in turn gave rise to. The America First doctrine, which was essentially a kind of um, mean-spirited isolationism, there is in you know the, to me one of the great regrets that I have about the whole Iraq saga is that I, I can't honestly tell you what the foreign policy establishment has learned from this. Particularly, you know, in conservative circles, there is a, a spectrum of foreign policy possibilities between misadventurism, you know, in the Middle East and America first isolationism. But um, when are we gonna have that conversation as, as, to what, as to what our presence in the world should be? For that matter, it's an interesting question for Joe Biden that he did not have to address in the debates. He said that you know he regretted his decision to give Bush um, uh, the authorization to use military force, but basically blamed it all on Bush. You know, what has he learned from this? I do suspect he's learned some things. People from the Obama administration told me that his hesitancy as regards um, bombing Libya, as regards the Abbottabad raid, uh, were really very much a testament to his kind of second-guessing himself and recognizing all that could go wrong when you go in. Um, and, uh, but it's, you know, I, um, you know, that was a debate, like many, that we could have had over the last few years, but instead um, we paused it um, for Trumpism and, um, and for this kind of, you know, um, populist, isolationist demagoguery that um, has, you know, set off to the side of the table any serious consideration of um, just when our presence is required overseas. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.